people, all right? Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We are presented by Playwear. It's more than fashion, it's a feeling. That's play, P-L-A-A, wear. Go to pressplay.com to learn more. And if you want to buy something for Father's Day or for the 4th of July coming up, use the uh, entry code PAYNE, P-A-Y-N-E, 10, to get 10% off of your favorite apparel on playwear.com. Again, it's the Here Comes the Pain podcast, and I'm your host, Joel Payne. I'm excited to be joining you today, and I have a guest that is going to have a great conversation with me about big political news that a lot of folks are really starting to dial into. Folks like me who are flying in nationally want to know more about what's going on in this New York City mayor's race. And I was able to secure the time of one Harry Siegel with the New York Daily News. And Harry and I um, actually did some TV together probably right before the pandemic. I think it was Harry, maybe a year and a half or two years ago. And I really enjoyed talking to you. And you're as plugged in as anybody in the New York uh, political scene. So I'm glad you were able to join me. How's it going? Hey, man, it's all right. Thank you for, uh, for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So, Harry, our, our conversation is opportune right now because we are just coming off the heels of this big debate, eight folks on stage um, in New York City earlier this week. And I guess maybe we start there. I know you were watching this closely, doing some reporting out on the debate. Just maybe, you know, align us a little bit, help us understand what happened, what some of the key issues were that came up and how all the candidates fared. So this was the second debate of the cycle. It was on ABC for an hour, and then it was on weird channels like ABC Digital Channel 2 and uh, New York TV, which is channel 2041 on your dial and things like that. Right. And that sort of speaks to the nature of this race. There were eight candidates on the debate stage. Eight. That's a lot. And... It's very hard to break through in that sort of setting. So this got presented by the New York Times, for instance, as a pivotal moment. And there were some, some fireworks and interesting moments, but nothing actually pivoted. So we've been in a position where Andrew Yang, who's credentialed for running for mayor, is that he ran for president, in effect. And Eric Adams, the borough president of Brooklyn, former cop, former Republican, longtime politician, have been the two front runners continually since January. And not all that much has actually moved. Uh, Catherine Garcia, who's a former sanitations commissioner, and housing czar and food czar for de Blasio, sort of the one person who came out of that administration with her reputation enhanced by the work she did. She got the endorsements of the New York Times and the New York Daily News and seems to be moving up in the polls. Uh, but you then have a whole number of other candidates who are trying to break through or, or, or to correct things. The candidates on the left have had sort of a series of car crashes. Um, <clears throat> Scott Springer, who's like another longtime New York palm, out of these eight candidates, Springer and Adams are the only two who've ever held elected office, in fact, or run before uh, in New York. Um, he, he was considered a, a the other front runner, and then there was a... Uh, a sexual harassment accusation against him from a former uh, volunteer who described herself as an intern 20 years ago. Uh, and after that emerged within two days, that came out on a Wednesday, by the middle of Friday, all of his progressive backers had walked away. And 
that damaged his uh, his coalition significantly, but it hasn't really completely knocked them off in what polling we have. I'm going to come right back to that. And it's made it hard for any of the other progressive candidates to uh, to break through. So so in an interesting way, after after a summer last year of uh, protests about policing, the the reformers and the progressives who seem like a rising wave in New York, they're not seeming like that at the moment in this citywide race. And in fact, the, the candidates were talking about how uh, we need we need more and better policing in different ways uh, and quality of life issues and things like that. And with both Yang and Adams, who have Republicans packing super PACs that, that, that are supporting their, their, their campaigns, uh, have, have been in the weeds. So it's an interesting moment in New York to sort of figure out how far these uh, reform currents go and if they, they're, they're starting to roll back now. Well, Harry, that, and that's a great primer on the race. You know, to me, again, from the outside looking, I'm a, I'm a Jersey guy, but uh, would not claim to be an expert on uh, municipal politics in New York City. It, it feels to me like that Scott Stringer moment was a pretty transformative moment in the race um, that really did seem to change the direction of um, maybe Stringer being kind of an insurgent candidate um, who could kind of come and um, be a spoiler of, of sorts. Um, so that seemed to be a big moment, but it feels to me from the outside looking in like the the two biggest fish in the race right now are Yang and Adams. And I say that because it feels like the biggest fireworks in, in, in that debate that we're talking about was when Yang and Adams kind of went back and forth and uh, Yang made some claims about Adams and past um, accusations of corruption. And obviously Yang took on um, some oncoming for um, kind of his relative lack of experience and his, you know, he, he, he hasn't voted um, in, in recent elections and things like that. Am, am I thinking about that right? Is it Yang and Adams really is like tier one and everybody else is tier two? Or would you maybe consider Garcia now that she's got these big endorsements and she's starting to build some momentum? Is Garcia also in that first tier as well? So we don't totally know because there's this weird new ranked choice voting system um, that is, is complicated, but basically means you, you get to vote for your top five choices. And if your top choice is eliminated, your vote goes to your second choice until somebody has 50%. This is getting tested out on a large scale in New York for the first time because this makes it much more expensive to poll races and then, then to count the polling you have and figure out who'd actually be winning. All the big poll firms have stayed away. So we've had, we've had a bunch of, of sort of dubious polls and, and polls that the campaigns have put out, particularly the Yang campaign publicly, but it's hard to say w w what those what those are worth. It did appear that most of the candidates were directing most of their fire at Adams, which maybe says something about what their internal polling is showing. And clearly the, 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 the high point, or the biggest fireworks rather, in the debate was Adams and Yang going at each other in that second hour, which again was after it was no longer in WABC and, you know, go find us on the internet or channel, whatever. Which is a big deal, right, Harry? I mean, your, your point there, I know what you're saying. It's you, you didn't have as big of an audience at that point as you did earlier in the debate, right? I, can, I, I know I can bring the pain here, but can I bring profanity? You can bring profanity. What the fuck, ABC? <laughs> the idea that you can't put in two hours of your time. They had a game show involving robots that was on at eight, which is what they cut to. Two hours to uh, let people, many of whom are tuning into this race for the first time. By the way, they just moved the primary up to June. Everything we're talking about is the Democratic primary because in practice, whoever wins the Democratic primary is going to be mayor. 
There is a Republican primary. Curtis Sliwa, the founder of the Guardian Angels and a longtime New York character, is almost certainly going to win that. And I assure you, he's not going to be mayor. So this is it. Character is a good character is a good word for it, by the way. But you know, I just to kind of circle back on your point that you just made, Harry. I mean, why do you think that is? Because to me, if if these if the networks did not prioritize putting the entire debate in front of as large of an audience as possible, I mean, that does that kind of say something to you about either the attention that's being paid to the race or the significance that's being put on the race, or maybe that no one's really broken out of the pack? I, and and as I tee that up to you, I'll also say um, I remember, um, you know, eight, I guess it was eight years ago when uh, Bill de Blasio was running for mayor um, and he kind of came out of nowhere. Right. It was it was Anthony Weiner and it was um, uh, Comptroller Thompson. Right. They were the Christine, lead, Quinn. Christine Quinn. That's right. Were the lead candidates. And. Christine Quinn had a controversy that happened that really took the wind out of her sails. And obviously, Anthony Weiner, his, I mean, to say he had a controversy would be an understatement. And Thompson's support seemed to shrivel up. And it kind of seems like de Blasio just kind of, kind of stayed above water and then at the end made a late surge because he kind of became almost like the, it, it almost feels like ranked choice happened without actually being constituted last time around. It feels like de Blasio is probably the second cho- choice of a lot of people walking into that race. Am I thinking about that the right way? I'm, I'm, give me give me a deep breath here. There, there, there's a lot to go through. That's right. And, and I think you just nailed some of it. Uh, five candidates was, was probably too many uh, for things to sort out, and de Blasio wins very accidentally. Uh, there's a few big factors to play into that. He has an outside pack when none of the other candidates do. This, this cycle, seven of the eight do. Um, that, that hurts Quinn some. And means that, that, that she gets hammered sooner than she's expecting. But the big thing that happens is Wiener rises in this race, makes it a national story in a way that, that this year has not been. And as his support goes up, Quinn's goes down. Um, Bill Thompson, who'd run against uh, Bloomberg four years earlier and come much closer than many people suspected because Bloomberg spent $100 million saying there's no race here, just go away. This was for the after he changed the law to give himself a third term. He fades. And then... The real progressive in the race, John Liu, who's the first uh, significant Asian candidate for mayor in the history of New York City. The campaign finance board took all his money away because he had some 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 people uh, in, 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 in different Chinatowns who, who were doing straw bundling, right? Because we had this matching funds thing. Right. And they didn't have anyone who spoke uh, Cantonese at the campaign finance board, so they took all of his matching funds away. And that destroyed his campaign. It was a really sort of weird racist thing. So all these things happen. De Blasio is nowhere six weeks out and ends up as mayor. It's extremely accidental. The problem with this ranked choice system now is it almost guarantees these sorts of outcomes. The reason there's eight of them is if you have matching funds and you're going to be somebody's second choice, there's absolutely no reason to leave the race. And having that many candidates on the stage so that even in two hours, if you do watch the whole thing and find you know channel YouTube for the second hour, it's just hard to get all that much uh, uh, clarity or distilling of the race in that sort of circumstance. The closest we came was in the second hour, there was a candidates get to ask other candidates questions. And the candidates asked actually much sharper, more focused questions here than the moderators did for the most part. And Adam said to Yang, you know, you, you, you left New York in the middle of the pandemic. 
you've never voted for a mayor here, which is the office you're running for. Like, why should we elect someone like you? And Yang turns around to Adams and says, uh, you're corrupt. You've been investigated at the city, state, and federal levels. Uh, you represent everything corroded in our politics. Why should anyone elect you mayor? And then Scott Springer jumps in briefly to say, you're both right. And he, he well might be. But because this has not captured sort of the, the wider attention of the city, let alone the country, uh, for the most part, Yang has to, to a limited extent because, you know, he's traded in his national celebrity to make this run. It, it, it means that the, the candidates who absorbed the most attention in Yang's case and who came in with the most uh, solid coalition support in Adams um, have, have, have stayed at the top. Interestingly, by the way, while the young progressives ran away from Springer, like his, his, his big boy supporters, if you want. So, so Congressman Jerry Nadler, who's a power in Manhattan, uh, the teachers union, which has a, a big outside spend, one of those packs putting up ads for Springer. They, they, they stayed behind him and that sort of dance with the one that brung you mentality. I imagine the <laughs> Cuomo, I imagine, by the way, what happened with Governor Cuomo may have had some sort of a, you know, there may have been collateral damage about how Stringer decided to ride out his controversy. Am I right? I, I, I would think so. And what's crazy is Cuomo has like a dozen accusers at this point, including a, a, a real serious, like basically a, a assault allegation from a staffer. Right. Scott has Scott Springer has one accuser who says stuff happened 20 years ago, whose story has not entirely been stood up and the real questions about. And that's it. And yet Stringer has been and partly this is the position he's in. You know, one of them has power is the governor is by far the mightiest politician in the state and is not willing to give that up. And the others, you know, the sort of uh, nebbishy uh, 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 controller in New York City who wants to be mayor. So, so but 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 they, they have both had a. Uh, a, a ride this out and, and sort of a firmly deny things response to the, I think, very different accusations against them. And Cuomo, who, who pretty openly hates the, uh, the, the the farther progressive left and this new generation of politicians. And famously, sort of famously doesn't like de Blasio. Yeah, famously doesn't like de Blasio as well, obviously. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who, who, who's dreaming now. And, and de Blasio is not so popular in New York City. is very unpopular in New York State, but he'd like to run against Cuomo next year which is sort of a hilarious, looming thing. Um, Cuomo should be so lucky to end up with that enemy, I would think, but um, it, it could be a very Stranger. interesting race. And, and he's quietly supporting Eric Adams, who, um, who then, if he's mayor, maybe supports de Blasio. It, it, it all remains to be seen, but it, it, it's odd and interesting and, and sort of angry musical chairs. Interesting. So something that I think might be useful for the listeners here is I'm gonna I'm gonna go through the candidates and you give me as long as you want. Maybe say somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty seconds to a minute. Kind of a high level about each candidate. We've talked about a few already, but I want to go through the eight and I just just tell me something because some of these people. I'm gonna be honest with you and look. I'm a political nerd, Harry. I mean, you've you've we've talked before. Um, I absorb and consume this stuff, and some of these people I've never heard of. Some of them I have, and I I I, I don't know about their kind of public footprint um, as a potential mayor, but some of these people I've never heard of before. Um, so I'm going to start with the one who I have least heard of is Ray McGuire, who is a former businessman, um, someone in the financial sector, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yep. L long time Citigroup executive, deal maker, 
uh, somebody in the business class sort of nominated to run. Uh, it's been referred to and chafes at the idea that he's some sort of quote black Bloomberg um, has has not managed to catch fire. Came up from 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 nothing, uh, you know, and made a real success himself. But he's not Bloomberg level wealthy. He can't fund his own campaign, and and uh, despite having Spike Lee doing ads and, and uh, a lot of support from from celebrity class, including rappers and uh, basketball players and, and people like that. Just, just hasn't managed to break through in this race, and at this point is more or less checked out, other than beating up on uh, on Sean Donovan, who uh, he uh, openly loves. Sounds uh, been a very amusing sideline. You know what's interesting about that? This this gentleman sounds like Andrew Yang was in the presidential race. That's what the, that's what that sounds like to me. Is like he is the Andrew Yang of the presidential cycle in twenty twenty for Democrats. Just the way you describe the race dynamics. Um, that's that's what this this McGuire sounds like. He's kind of he's got some like high level celebrity support, but there's no real grassroots infrastructure that's really supporting him. And ultimately, he's not going to be able to keep pace with the other candidates. That's um that's super interesting. You mentioned Sean Donovan as someone who McGuire kind of is taking shots at. Uh, people like me in D.C. are familiar with Donovan as the former HUD secretary. Um, I know he kind of comes from a pretty wealthy background. He's able to his family was able to help self-finance um, part of this campaign, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think a lot of people assume that Donovan might have caught on or might have, you know, maybe he a lot of that kind of Obama infrastructure support. He might have been able to take up to New York and um, take the race by storm. But that 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 hasn't happened. Right. So he has a, a very impressive CV as a member of the Obama administration and before that a uh, housing guy for, for Bloomberg. He's offered himself as a, as a strong progressive, but he has not caught on with either sort of the, the business and ruling class or the progressive class. He, his dad has put several million dollars into a PAC that technically can't coordinate with the uh, candidate, but I mean, come on, it's his dad. And he's uh, never run for office before. Um, it's just constantly a message. Never brings up Bloomberg. Always brings up Obama. Ray McGuire likes to just sort of snarl at him. Sean Obama. <laughs> um, and and, and the, the, the two of them have been for, for different reasons, but just just stuck at the uh, stuck at the bottom. Um, uh, Sean also likes to talk a lot about like, like the work he did with uh, Metro IAF. The, the, the Solovinsky organization, like in Brooklyn when he was younger and so on. And, and this is, uh, you know, a, a, a prep school kid who grew up very wealthy and went to elite institutions. And it's just not coming off as a uh, as a credible message. I should also note that those two, you know, the, the banker and the treasury guy are the two who, when asked what the average, you know, That's house right. cost in Brooklyn said like $90,000, which, which is which good is- guy. Uh, that well, that's not. I, I, you know, I, can we just hover on that for a second? Did, do you think that they misunderstood that question? Because I, I, I remember I was reading, I was like, "There's no way these guys could have thought that." I mean, I don't even live in New York, and I would have, I, I accidentally, I wouldn't have even guessed something in that stratosphere. What, what gives there? What, I, I mean, is that just poor staffing? Is that does that reflect that these gentlemen have kind of demonstrated themselves to be somewhat out of touch? What, what do you think that is? Well, with Donovan, there was clearly a staffing issue. It was not only did he screw it up at the time, but he knew he screwed it up. And so he followed up at the Times with, with a completely unbelievable story about why he'd screwed it up. And it's because he was volunteering on a housing lawsuit and had these other numbers in his head. It just didn't make any sense when you lined it up with the transcript and what, what he actually said. So I'm, I'm baffled by, by how they could have been off by, by that order of magnitude. Uh, but but it, it, it was a telling moment. It was also, you know, 
the sort of thing that's even rougher when, when you fail to catch any sort of uh, traction up until that point. And, and then that, that's what's happening. And for the two guys whose credentials have the most to do with, uh, along with Scott Stringer, fine with that with handling money. That's so interesting. Um, let's keep going. So Maya Wiley, who I think you and I may have even uh, run into <laughs> um, back in the day in the green room somewhere, um, little did I know that she was going to become a candidate for mayor. Um, you know, I I would have to say that it feels like maybe her campaign has not taken off the way people would assume. This is a very accomplished, very highly visible um, African-American woman, former counsel to de Blasio. What do you think? think is am i am i right to suggest that maybe her campaign has not been received with the type of enthusiasm that maybe was expected on the front end and or correct me on that and also just help me think about what imprint she's had on the race so she's a first-time campaigner who's really really good on television and in person and like a compelling magnetic intelligent person who's not been able to fully get that out you know, in, in a neat, tidy, concise package, like when, at this debate when you have 45 seconds to answer a question, for instance. So she didn't raise money as quickly as expected. Um, she wasn't able to introduce herself to New Yorkers as, as quickly as she would have liked. She bet really big on police reform in the aftermath of the, uh, and the midst of, rather, the, uh, uh, the George Floyd protests last summer, which had been followed by a year of dramatically increased gun violence in New York. Um, and, and, and it's just been wrong footage. She also had the issue of having Diane Morales, who we'll get to, uh, but, but a candidate to her left, which she was not expecting. She, she was hoping to sort of be the person on, on the left, particularly on, on police reform, uh, who was very successful in raising small dollar contributions and cutting her off from some of those. So in certain ways, she ended up squeezed between Scott and Diane. And, and, and to this point, at least, hasn't been able to entirely break through, although she's made a significant effort to in both debates uh, so far without quite getting there. The, the, the last issue with her is she, she did work for the de Blasio administration, and then she was the chair of the Civilian Complaint Review Board that sort of oversees the NYPD and where de Blasio placed her. And in both of those roles, she helped de Blasio retard these sort of policing reforms she says she'd be all about as mayor, which, which makes it, she wouldn't have the standing to run for mayor if she hadn't served in this administration. But the work she did in this administration makes it harder for her to be a credible messenger for the uh, 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 the agenda she, she says she's about. That's so interesting. And I guess one other question about her before we move on. I get the sense that she's maybe, she even though I kind of did my wind up and talked about how she's disappointed so far, maybe in public perception, it feels like maybe she's picking up some traction in some of the uh, the public polls, which again, with your caveat that the polling has been hard to nail down in this race, but that maybe you could consider her to be almost like in the de Blasio spot where he was, you know, eight years ago. Would you say that that is potentially Maya Wiley could be potentially viewed as the same type of like compromised second choice candidate who could maybe come out of nowhere to surprise some people? She certainly hopes so. Joel, your, your, your 2013 comparisons to this race are really on point. Uh, that that is where she hopes to be, and there's still time. And then if she bursts through, there'll be a, a retroactive feeling that this was all inevitable. Uh, but so far, that hasn't come to fruition. There's three weeks left uh, to basically to uh, the start of early voting, and and still time. Like lots of New Yorkers are just tuning in and meeting these candidates for the first time at these debates. So so she still thinks that there, there, there's 
just enough space left for that sort of weight surge if things break right. Yes. Interesting. You talked about Diane Morales, and I want to spend a, a minute here um, because, admittedly, um, I I had not heard much about Miss um, Morales um, before the recent controversy that seems to have engulfed her campaign within the last 10 days or so um, related to unionization efforts on her campaign, if I'm not mistaken. And there were allegations of a toxic work environment. It feels like she was maybe almost like the progressives, progressive candidate um, for this race, or, or maybe at least that's what the framing and the messaging was. And it feels like that took a big hit because of those allegations. I mean, if that's where most people are hearing about you the first time or most people broadly are hearing about you, that's probably not a good thing, rule of politics. Can you tell me a little bit more about Ms. Morales? She, she's a longtime nonprofit executive who draws a significant six-figure salary, has been a supporter of the charter school movement, voted for Andrew Cuomo, who offered a, a very, you know, uh, sloganeer left wing and identity-oriented appeal that, uh, that, that caught on, particularly with small donors and gained momentum. And as I said, that, that hampered Maya. She's in the middle of a totally bizarre and impenetrable scandal in which her staff is protesting outside of her office. They're trying to unionize. People are getting fired. She says that has nothing to do with the unionization and only talks about it in, in, in basically impenetrable uh, leftist jargon terms, including on the debate stage. And this is how people are meeting her. And, and I think this has been very damaging for her. Um, I, I, I think her being in the race has been made things more difficult for, for Wiley in particular. And it's interesting to see somebody who, who saw, uh, you know, uh, who saw this opportunity to, to fill this land that didn't match her, her politics or her CV up till this point, jump in and do super well without much scrutiny, partly because she wasn't still at the sort of the top tier of the race. And then to see that implode because her staffers who actually mean all the stuff she's sloganeering about and also are aware that, that she's not actually going to win and be mayor, uh, just, just saying, okay, that's enough. Three weeks out, we're going to protest our own candidate. It's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty wild scene and an indicator of, of a campaign that doesn't fully have control of itself or its message. It's a pretty remarkable story. Let's keep going. So we talked about Scott Stringer a little bit, um, you know, interspersed in some of the earlier parts of the conversation. Um, I think we obviously people are aware of the, the allegation against him and how that really rocked his campaign. Um, tell me just about kind of Stringer, maybe sands that allegation and who he is in this field. And, you know, maybe tell me whether I'm, I'm thinking about this the wrong way, but it feels like in any other year kind of might be like the kind of standard, almost maybe like the Biden of the field, like the person who. Um, is kind of like the steady, reliable hand at the wheel that would have been a natural uh, person to kind of take the mantle from de Blasio. It felt like Stringer could have been that in any other year, but this is such a chaotic year, and obviously the the personal controversy there um, you know, uh, had an impact on that. But tell me a little bit about Scott Stringer as well. So Scott Stringer becomes controller in 2013. He's been a state senator. He's been an Attenborough president. He's the front runner to be controller. Elliot Spitzer, who had resigned as governor after a prostitution scandal, jumps into the race and is up by 25 points. And Scott ends up beating him because Scott is steady and competent, actually knows a lot more about the job at hand, and uh, you know maybe, maybe gets an assist 
from Roger Stone, incidentally, who hates Elliot Spitzer in the process. But in any case, he's got this office. He's, he's a real lefty, but also a guy who's, who's nipping at the heels of de Blasio. The mayor is supposed to be a lefty. In 2018, he supports all of these young insurgent candidates, many of them women of color, who are running against the members of the so-called IDC, or Independent Democratic Coalition, that in practice gives Republicans the control of the state Senate and helps Cuomo, the governor, maintain himself as the indispensable man who can like resolve things between these two parties. The IDC candidates do really well. Democrats take over the Senate. This wave continues in 2020 in congressional races. Lots of, of, of new members of Congress come in this way. Scott would bet on them, then has their support. So he gets to both be like the reliable, nebbishy Jewish guy who's got the Upper West Side on lock, and the uh, candidate backed by all the, these young uh, uh, progressive people and, and often women of color who are a rising force, it seems like, in politics. And so he's trying to be in both lanes simultaneously, which actually gets very complicated and is quite a straddle. Uh, the people on the left walk away from him after this uh, the, the single accusation from this woman, Jane Ken. And he, he now seems like he's, he's not going away, but he's, uh, he, he's damaged. Um, and he's, his campaign thinks there's still, there's still a path for him, as with Maya, for, for him to break through if, if things break right and turn right at the end. He has a good deal of money to spend, which again, as people are just tuning in, is significant. And there's clearly like a coterie of older uh, 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 women in particular and Manhattan voters who are more sympathetic to him after all this. But I do think that he's been uh, he's been damaged. Um, he seems liberated by this in the debates where, where he can just sort of freely take his shots and speak bluntly about the other candidates and uh, and their failings. Uh, and that he's enough of a pro that he's going to see this through win or lose. But I do assume that at this point uh, he's going to lose. Interesting. Um, we got three more candidates here. Appreciate these this background. This is super helpful. So, Catherine Garcia, um, we talked about her a bit, and I, I know that the Times had the kind of somewhat surprising endorsement, and, I, and obviously your publication, the Daily News, um, had that endorsement as well. And I, I saw some recent polling, again, with the caveat that the polling can be a little funky, but I think there was definitely a bump that she got from those endorsements, right? Because in early mid-May, she was solidly in like third place, maybe fourth place, depending on who you trust. It looks like there are two recent polls that have her um, neck and neck or maybe a bit ahead of Yang and Adams. So, you know, well, maybe start with this. Do those newspaper endorsements have historically, have they moved um, public sentiment in, in a place like New York City where I know it can be very provincial and very parochial. I, a lot of my experience is in like um, state in politics in like Iowa, right, where like you have the Des Moines Register endorsement, which changes national perception but doesn't necessarily move votes on the ground. What's the dynamic on the ground there? And then maybe some other things about um, uh, Catherine Garcia that we should be aware of. I mean, this has been a rough century so far for newspapers and the idea that these endorsements could really move the needle in this crowded race and this important race is is pretty cool and remarkable uh we're going to see you know in a few weeks how that plays out but if, if she wins that that really will have been a pivotal moment in a race that hasn't had very many of them giving the times and then the, the news backing her um my concern with garcia who i think is is 
thoughtful and impressive and competent um, is that, 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 that she very consciously is not offering any pizzazz and more or less disappears on the debate nights, for instance, and also is very cautious, is very purposefully not offering any vision. She's a really smart woman who's been an administrator for a long time and I think is ready to lead and has some ideas. But whatever the, the, those ideas are, she's only willing to put out in like discrete and specific details. And there, there is a sense in which that's exactly what you want from a deputy mayor or a commissioner, which she's been. And, and how that translates into leading the city two ways. One, into New Yorkers voting for her as the person who will actually lead the city. And two, what she would do if given that opportunity are both still nebulous to me. So look, you know, we all do theater criticism and like who performed well and <clears throat> make our guesses about what that performance is going to be worth. And maybe that doesn't matter. And she's going to show us that. And that, that would be cool. And I'd love to be shown up that way. But it is hard for me to see how she uh, how she breaks through without without offering a little more of, of, of herself and uh, a little more of, of what she would want to do <clears throat> As mayor and the, the prince you would put on the office past uh, past competence and uh, and administration and you know that there's no Republican or Democratic way to take out the garbage. The last thing I'll say is, by all accounts, right? She's she's actually like a very charismatic and appealing person. I can vouch that she's really smart and thoughtful. And the extent to which she she has chosen, and you know, again, another first time candidate to sort of constrain all that. Uh, in the course of this campaign is is striking to me. I, I'm sure I'm sure it's purposeful and there's a strategy behind it, but uh, I'm not sure that's going to play out. Very interesting. And Politico um, in early May called her um, everybody's second favorite candidate, which again, that particularly in a ranked choice type of setup, feels like a particularly um, interesting strategy. Has that been a strategy of Miss Garcia to kind of position herself as, hey, if I'm not your first choice, I can be your second. Yes, she wants to be people's first choices. She's been perfectly open about that, but but she also is just offering herself as you know. If there's one person who, who appeals to you for 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 whatever reasons, uh, tribal ones or ideological ones or whatever, and you're thinking about who to put in after that, put me there. Uh, we we know that in practice from other cities, and New York is a much bigger one, but uh, the, the, the the tend to be limits to how well that ranked choice strategy works that you need to be a, a lot of people's first choice to win and then you're not going to move up from fourth on the first count to uh to winning the race because you're everyone's second but uh the good thing about ranked choice is you do have to run all around the city you can't sort of give up on other people's strongholds and th- th- you do have reason to appeal to people who are not going to uh put you at the top of their ballot interesting and then we've got our final two candidates which we've already talked about a bit so we can maybe talk about them together andrew yang and eric adams and I guess maybe my framing for this part of the discussion is it feels to me like these two gentlemen are somewhat jousting and battling for what I might call like the Bloomberg mantle, the Bloomberg seat, which to me is, yes, I am obviously I'm seeking the Democratic nomination, but there is a kind of a crossover vote. Maybe it's, um, you know, center right, center in the city, more wealthy folks law and order type of folks that I want to appeal to as a responsible administrator of government and someone who is not going to be, you know, veer too far to the left and um, become too 
um, engaged in kind of what they might think of as these partisan battles. I'm, I'm, I'm mimicking what others might say, but you, you get my point. It feels like these two gentlemen are vying for that spot in the race. Am I thinking about that right? And maybe just some thoughts about Yang and Adams um, as we kind of round out our review of all the candidates. This is how this came out of the debate when they really went at it was Eric Adams noted the gang had left New York and this other stuff. And then he said, there was a shooting around Times Square where you live and you did a big press conference after that. Where you been, Andrew? Where you been when this has been happening all around the city and over many years and I've been there? And, and basically accusing Yang reasonably of being a, a real Johnny come lately on these issues. Uh, this race seems to be getting defined by public safety concerns. Uh, notably, by the way, there's been absolutely nothing about public health. And as this race has played out in the midst of the pandemic, part of that is that, that someone's going to win in June and they wouldn't actually be mayor until next January. Who knows what things are going to look like then? You know, knock on wood, they're going to look a lot more like normal, but who knows? But for that reason, a lot of this has focused around uh, real public safety concerns and then order concerns and the business class's concerns about whether or not Midtown is going to revive and about uh, homeless encampments and about wild parties in Washington Square Park and about train shovings and a sense of a more chaotic and disorderly uh, city and what that's going to mean. And, and that matters to the business class. It matters to lots of like, you know, people raising families here. And, and the homeowners, which, which this is a renter city, but the, you know, those homeowners are all turning out to vote. And Garcia has also been in her ways, I think, in that lane. And I just, I, I, I think the demand for, for let's take everything apart and, and transform things is, is less than advertised. That said, part of Yang's appeal is, is he's trying to make, I've never voted or participated in civic politics at all into a sort of virtue. He's like, you know, you guys have it. Look how bad everything's going. So why not go with me? Which is an extremely Bloombergian appeal, by the way, um, when he first ran in 2001 and offered himself that way. The difference, of course, being that Bloomberg was a ridiculously successful actual billionaire businessman. And yet Yang's a guy who had like a test prep company that did okay. And, you know, got, got a big enough payout to buy like a, a you know small apartment in Hell's Kitchen. And, and yet has presented himself as, as both the math guy um, and, and a very successful entrepreneur in ways that, that don't actually you know match up with his record. But he's done a very good job of selling against as a candidate. Yeah, it seems like he's really rebranded, um, you know, coming off that presidential run during that presidential run. And now in this mayoral run, um, it feels like Yang has really rebranded. Um, this is a great um, kind of retrospective on the race. Um, let me reset right quick. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Playware. That's P-L-A-A, Playware. Go to pressplay.com to learn more. Um, I'm joined today by Harry Siegel, who is an intrepid reporter with the New York Daily News and who has just given us some really awesome insights into the New York mayor's race, which we are down the final stretch. We've got three weeks left before um, primary day. Um, and when I say the mayor's race, I'm, I'm really talking about the Democratic primary, which most people understand is kind of the big race for mayor, because whoever wins the primary is very much assumed to win the race. So I should be clear about that. Um, Harry, um, I promised I would get you out of here at a reasonable time. So I want to wind down our conversation. I have two kind of questions as we wrap up the conversation. One is about the role of the New York mayor in general. And the other is about the person who will be vacating this office. 
um, at the beginning of next year, which is Mayor de Blasio. Let's start with the de Blasio question. Um, and look, I, I, I will say um, I know folks who've been in the de Blasio administration and it has been an interesting journey. Um, I understand that um, he is somewhat of a controversial figure, but not for the reasons most people think of controversy. It's really because while I think he has been popular, he's a popular administrator of government and he has done things that people like. He is personally, it seems like, not very popular and has some personal residue that has made him kind of this conflicted figure. So maybe talk about de Blasio and kind of like a retrospective on the de Blasio years and how you think that might play into this race in terms of how voters are thinking about this this pool of candidates. So they got asked if they would take de Blasio's endorsement. And Andrew Yang was the only candidate who raised his hand, which says something. Wow. Uh, you know, it's a little funny because, because de Blasio does want Adams to um, to come in. And I've actually been hoping that his wife, Charlene, who he refers to as the First Lady of New York, which is a title I don't think had been in use for 100 years before that, he wanted her to be Brooklyn Borough President for a bunch of reasons that didn't pan out. But look, de Blasio won in 2013. He handily won re-election in 2017. His support among black voters has remained pretty solid. Um, and, and he's been a, 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 a sort of lousy mayor. Like After getting pre-K done, he just didn't live up to the, the stuff he talked about when he came in, in terms of uh, police reform. Um, he, he had all sorts of corruption questions swirling around him, and then took getting seriously scolded by local and federal prosecutors uh, as vindication. Uh, he hasn't really had control of his own police department at a lot of points. Um, and that's true whether you think the, the main issue is reform or public safety. And and has a struggle with this. At the same time, his big thing was, I'm going to redistribute money. Too much has been going to the top. And he basically did that. And and that, that's easy to miss in the day-to-day, but it, it says something about why his support has never collapsed, even as the the, the media class has, has been very open, myself included, in, in, in their, their, their sort of broad contempt for him, for his uh, venal wheeling and dealing, which, to his pseudo-credit, has never involved self-enrichment. Uh, it's always it's always been sort of a series of shell games to to advance his political goals or the people getting enriched, rather, as consultants. You know, it's not, it's not ending up in his pockets. So that's interesting, though, Harry. Let me... Because he is well supported, he has a huge infrastructure of support. It seems like because of these policies that he's pushing, but he's not well liked, right? Is that the way to maybe sum up De Blasio? He, he's very hard to like. He, he uh, he's prickly with the press. He doesn't like to celebrate New York. He comes off as, as a bit much of the time as, as an exhausted jerk, and uh, often hasn't seemed like he's enjoyed this job. He, he seemed liberated in the last very little bit. Maybe because he's getting to the end there. But uh, one of the big things Andrew Yang in particular is running at on, and this has often been a formula for success in New York, is the personality corrected to the last man. So interesting. Um, that's a really kind of smart way to kind of think about that de Blasio time and how that will impact the race. And then just the last question. So when I, when I shorthand and kind of talk about the job of New York mayor, and I guess you could kind of take this to any real big city mayor, Look, in a campaign like this, there are a lot of things that are going to come up. Uh, what do you think about these progressive issues? What do you, you know, what do you think about all of all of the sundry of kind of more what I might call esoteric issues that don't necessarily always come up when you're the mayor? But to me, the job is 
Can you pick the garbage up? Can you clean up the snow? And if there's an unfortunate incident where there's police violence, can you demonstrate the right amount of public sympathy? Yeah, I mean, and I'm being very reductive, admittedly. But, like, that's how I think about that job. Is is that more or less right? Yeah. If if, if those are your standards... And, and and also, you know, sort of maintaining some level of, of, of public safety in order going for Garcia first. I mean, that, that's easy. Like, like she, she she is more than competent at all those things, and and has has proven that in a way that, that nobody else in the race has, and that that is her appeal. And I, I don't think she's done a great job of selling that, but I think it, it's a very strong appeal. And, and what a lot of New Yorkers are looking for. I'm curious how many of them are going to recognize her her as the obvious candidate if those are your standards. But that's very much a Biden message, right? Just taking it national for a second. I mean, that's essentially what Joe Biden did. He was just like, I'm just going to play it close to my vest. I'm going to run right down the middle of the Democratic Party and I'm just going to wait for these other candidates to kind of fall off and self-destruct and I will be there to, you know, collect the pot of gold at the end of this. And that's kind of what happened. And I think maybe this race will tell us how much of that national mood is being reflected in New York City, right? Because, I mean, does New York tend to follow kind of national attitudes towards their politicians? Because if they do, to your point, it seems like Garcia would maybe fit that bill more than any of the other candidates in the race. It should, but it doesn't because of this ranked choice voting thing. Yeah. Which means that none of those candidates had to leave because they didn't have enough money, uh, because they didn't have enough support. So you don't have that, 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 that natural culling where, where your choices get clearer and starker as the race continues. And I think that's very unfortunate. Uh, Harry, I'm so grateful for your time. Um, and this has been super smart. And as you might imagine, I could sit here and talk to you about this for another hour, but I'll spare both of our schedules um, and just say thank you. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Um, tell the listeners where they can follow you on Twitter, where they can read all of your great insights. Uh, plug away. So, deep breath, I am the opinion editor at the Daily Beast and do some of my writing there. I'm a columnist at the New York Daily News. I'm on Twitter at Harry Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L. I have a podcast all about New York politics with uh, Professor Christina Greer and uh, producer Alex Brooklyn, which is FAQ.NYC. And if you really want to know everything I'm doing, I have a newsletter, uh, I think it's called Siegeltown, S-I-E-G-E-L again, a button down uh, that I send out once a week just just with, you know, clips in the podcast and appearances like this. That's well, mostly for my family, but uh, it's, it's open for anyone else who, who just needs all the stuff. Well, I'm uh, I, I, uh, I'm plugged into some of those things, but I'll plug into all the rest. You, you're doing a lot, my friend. Uh, I'll make sure to keep an eye on you and maybe sometime after the race and when we uh, kind of have uh, a clear two-person race in the fall, maybe we can come back and do a retrospective on what happened in this primary and look forward to uh, what we will presume would be the next mayor of New York City uh, at that point. So I'd love to have you back on sometime. Hey, pleasure talking with you and uh, count me in for that. Again, it's the Here Comes the Pain podcast and I'm your host, Joel Payne. Follow me on Twitter at P-A-Y-N-E-D-C. That's at Payne D-C. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P-O-D. Thanks again to Harry Siegel, and thanks to you all for listening. Until next time, God bless.